Hi, I'm Lily Anderson, and this is Choosing Glory. This podcast is going to be dedicated to sharing some scriptural highlights with behavioral applications. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with a PhD in marriage, family, and human development. Married to Chris Anderson, we have eight wonderful kids. Six of them are married now, and we have our 36th grandchild that was born just over a month ago. So our cup runneth over. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about section 64 and a very common theme in the gospel, which is to forgive. Forgiveness, obviously, very important to God. Really essential if we're going to qualify for forgiveness ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, is this wonderful reminder, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Well, that's my goal. I want to be forgiven of my own faults and sins and shortcomings as I repent and try to get better, which is always the condition. But that means, too, that I need to forgive. And I can. I can forgive. Forgiveness is really more for the forgiver than it is for the one forgiven. We're the ones who would carry the stone in our chest and can easily become bitter or angry or grudge-filled if we don't drop that burden and forgive where we've been injured. Now, the tricky part for me comes when I work with clients, for instance, who have been maybe abused as children or abused at any stage of their lives where the injury has been deep and the perhaps the perpetrator has not repented. So there has been no apology extended. There's been no balm placed on that wound by the one who inflicted it. And then going to section 64 in the Doctrine and Covenants, sometimes it's hard for people in that situation to read these words from verse 9, Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. In verse 10 it goes on, I the Lord will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. So what does the victim of abuse or the victim of other serious injuries do with that? And I have seen people who have been somewhat tormented because they're having a hard time letting go completely of the idea that they might be in greater trouble than the one who inflicted such injury. And perhaps when they were at an incredibly innocent age. So they can really feel distressed by the idea that they might have a greater sin than the one who violated innocence or abused the vulnerable. I don't think that's what God means. I think that it's pretty clear that God doesn't want his people to be victimized. He talks about, through the words of Lehi in Second Nephi 2, that we are to act and not to be acted upon. He talks about being agents unto ourselves. So if we can avoid then victimhood as an outcome, that it's much easier to forgive. For instance, think of the battered wife who is beaten up by her husband, and then he says he's sorry and she forgives. And then he hits her again, and he says he's sorry and she forgives. And then he hits her again, and he says he's sorry and she forgives. So 
is that really forgiveness in the way the Lord intends, or is it victimhood? And I would suggest that it's more victimhood than forgiveness. And that's not God's goal for us. In fact, in the words of David Sorensen from a speech in April 2003 called Forgiveness Will Change Bitterness to Love, he says this, I would like to make it clear that forgiveness of sins should not be confused with tolerating evil. In fact, in the Joseph Smith translation, the Lord said, Judge righteous judgment. The Savior asks us to forsake and combat evil in all its forms, and although we must forgive a neighbor who injures us, we should still work constructively to prevent that injury from being repeated. A woman who is abused should not seek revenge, but neither should she feel that she cannot take steps to prevent further abuse. And I'm inserting here that that would be creating safety. If she takes steps to prevent further abuse, that means she's finding a way to be safe, whether it's outside of the relationship or or in a way that she is no longer subject to that mistreatment and abuse. Um, continuing with David Sorensen's words, a businessman treated unfairly in a transaction should not hate the person who was dishonest, but could take appropriate steps to remedy the wrong. Forgiveness does not require us to accept or tolerate evil. It does not require us to ignore the wrong that we see in the world around us or in our own lives. But as we fight against sin, we must not allow hatred or anger to control our thoughts or actions. End quote. That's a great statement that forgiveness is incredibly important, but does not mean that we should tolerate evil or not take steps to try to create safety or eliminate the vulnerability to somebody who is consistently hurtful. In Matthew 10, the Lord tells us, he sends us forth as sheep amongst the wolves. <laughs> That's a pretty strong statement. But then the great counsel that follows is, be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In other words, don't you be dishing it out. Don't you put any fine print in your contract. But you better read the fine print in everybody else's. Be aware that there, this is a world with celestial things going on. And we need to be wise, staying harmless ourselves. So, you know, forgiving is part of being harmless. I'm not going to hold the grudge. I'm not going to remember this forever. I remember speaking to a woman years ago who said, it was many years ago, actually, and it was not a client, but it was uh, someone that I knew who was recounting some things that had happened in her youth and she, you know, made a summary statement, which was, I will never forgive that person. And I thought, okay, I think that's what the Lord meant when he said we, that he'll forgive whom he wants to forgive, but we need to forgive everybody. Like, it doesn't do us any good to carry that burden around. A man named Lewis Smeads wrote a book called The Art of Forgiving, a really lovely book, all about forgiving. And he makes a wonderful point. He says that forgiveness is in the hands of the offended. In other words, that's the admonition the Lord is giving us. You forgive because your life will be better. You can drop that burden. You can move forward without that heavy load of bitterness or anger or grudge holding. But then Smeeds goes on to say that reconciliation is in the hands of the offender. In other words, forgiving someone doesn't mean we're reconciling with them. A battered wife who then finds her path to safety so that she is no longer subject to being acted upon in that abusive way, then can forgive. But that doesn't mean she's going to reconcile with a, a husband who remains dangerous or a businessman who was ripped off by somebody can take steps to remove himself from that interaction, that business dealing, 
and forgive. But that doesn't mean he has to go back and do business with that person again. So reconciliation is a different thing than forgiveness. And that's not the requirement here. Another wonderful story from conference was told by President James Faust in a speech called The Healing Power Forgiveness, given in April 2007. I actually believe he gave this speech or told this story twice in general conference over a period of seven years. And I remembered it from the first time he spoke it. I was so glad he repeated it. Certainly worth hearing again. And this is what he said in part of his speech. A sister who had been through a painful divorce received some sound advice from her bishop. Keep a place in your heart for forgiveness, and when it comes, welcome it in. That's a beautiful thought. Keep a place in your heart for forgiveness, and when it comes, welcome it in. Let me interpret a little bit. I would suspect that that sister was talking to her bishop after this painful divorce because she was having a hard time forgiving. It could easily have been something like that, and perhaps it was because the injuries were continuing and ongoing. For instance, when there are financial agreements made after a divorce and court-ordered, sometimes the fulfillment of those financial obligations isn't consistent or painless. Um, sometimes that can be used as a weapon. Those finances can be used as a weapon, and maybe the former wife is getting jerked around a little bit. Another thing could be ongoing in terms of child custody. Many times after divorce, children seem to be the sacrifice on the altar of political correctness, and the court order may not always be to the advantage of the children, or maybe it's not honored, or it's violated or abused or you know taken advantage of in some way. And in those cases, you could see how former spouse might have a hard time completing the forgiveness because safety hasn't been attained. I've actually told many, a woman who has gone through divorce, that you won't be completely safe until you're not financially dependent on court-ordered payments. Now, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't get court-ordered payments. They're often not enough anyway. But my point is that that can still be used. Those financial arrangements can still be used as a weapon to still exert power in some ways or injury on a former spouse. So in order to create real safety in our lives, if we can work toward financial independence, and then those payments that should be paid are no longer something that we have to wait for or completely rely on, and there's a much higher level of safety and a much greater opportunity to forgive. So that's the conclusion here is that we need to be safe in order to forgive. It's not really workable to expect ourselves to forgive when we're still in danger, when we are still in a place of vulnerability and the injuries are being repeated. That puts us, sadly, in the situation of the battered wife who may think she's forgiving but is, in essence, assenting to her own victimhood. That's not the goal. That's not what we want. What we want is to be clear and free of the injury and of the relationship. I've actually had the opportunity to talk to a lot of bishops and stake presidents because of the clinical work that I do. And sometimes in a fireside, I will take a moment and say, you know, may I speak to you priesthood leaders and to all those who might be priesthood leaders at some point and other auxiliary leaders and friends and family as well, that when someone comes in to talk to you about an injury that is currently happening in their lives from a spouse or a parent or somebody else that has become chronic, 
then may I suggest that you maybe don't just start out with, well, you know, you're going to need to forgive them. If that person is trying to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they're an active member of the church, trying to be worthy of temple covenants, they know that forgiveness is part of the deal. They understand that if we want to be forgiven for our transgressions and our sins and weaknesses, that we need to forgive. We understand that God has made significant points about this to us and does require it of all who seek to please our Heavenly Father. But may I suggest that that's not really the best place to start with somebody who is most certainly aware of that admonition to forgive. What I would suggest is that we start out with, how can I help you become safe? How can I help you get to a place of safety? Is there some way that we can marshal resources or provide sufficient help and support so that you can get into a place where you're safe? And then after safety is achieved, forgiveness is easy. Forgiveness is not difficult. Most people want to forgive. They want to be able to drop that load and give it to the Savior. The Alcoholics Anonymous have a great statement, let go and let God. But it's not just for alcoholics, it's for all of us. We want to be able to turn over those kinds of things to our Heavenly Father, but that happens when we are safe. Let's help our neighbor. Let's help our family members. Let's help those around us to find that safety and to be able to maintain it. Forgiveness can come rather easily after that. Let me include here a few favorite quotes on forgiveness. This is by an unknown author. Forgiving is not forgetting. It's letting go of the hurt. Another one by Dr. Phil. You have to forgive people, not because they deserve it, but because you deserve to be free of them. Gandhi once said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. I think those are important ideas. I love, of course, the powerful reassurance in Alma 42, verse 25. What do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. In other words, we can leave it to God to make sure that justice is done in the end. And it will be done. We can trust that. We can let go because all things are recorded in heaven and mercy doesn't rob justice. People will be accountable for what they have done that has been left unrepented. We can let go and let God. A beautiful story about forgiveness concerns the prophet Joseph Smith. And of course, we're studying so much about Joseph Smith this year as we read the Doctrine and Covenants. Really a beautiful book and certainly a book that I have loved for a very long time. That The story is told of W.W. W. Phelps, who was, of course, very involved in the early church, but then fell out of grace with the prophet for a while. He turned against Joseph Smith. In fact, he put his name to a letter that directly led to Joseph Smith's imprisonment in the Liberty Jail dungeon. It was a terrible period in this prophet's life, over three months that he remained in a place where he couldn't stand up, you know, they were cold, he knew his people were suffering. I mean, the torment was severe. But William W. Phelps later on repented and came back 
to the church, but went directly to Joseph Smith in a letter and said these words, I am as the prodigal son. I have seen the folly of my way, and I tremble at the guilt I have passed. I know my situation. You know it, and God knows it. And I want to be saved if my friends will help me. I have done wrong, and I am sorry. The beam is in my own eye. I ask forgiveness. I want your fellowship. If you cannot grant that, grant me your peace and friendship, for we are brethren, and our communion used to be sweet. Now, that's a beautiful apology. It's heartfelt. He's not making excuses or justifications or rationalizations. He's saying he has done wrong, and he's very sorry. He's asking forgiveness, having understood that the beam is in his own eye. It's it's a beautiful apology. Joseph Smith, who had been so directly harmed by W.W. Phelps' actions, wrote back, Believing your confession to be real, and your repentance genuine, I shall be happy once again to give you the right hand of fellowship and rejoice over the returning prodigal. And then he quoted from a verse of poetry, Come on, dear brother, since the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last. Yours as ever, Joseph Smith, Jr. Now, you may remember that after Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram were killed at Carthage Jail by that mob, W.W. Phelps penned the words to one of our beautiful hymns, number 27, Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Jesus anointed that prophet and seer, blessed to open the last dispensation, kings shall extol him, and nations revere. Hail to the prophet, ascended to heaven. Traitors and tyrants now fight him in vain. Mingling with gods he can plan for his brethren. Death cannot conquer the hero again. Do you feel the love? He had been one of the traitors for a period of time, but he was as the prodigal and repented fully and was embraced in full fellowship by the prophet, who understood how beautiful forgiveness is, not just for the one who is forgiven, but even more for the one who forgives. It's a great principle. Let's not abuse it. Let's not beat people over the head with it. I have often told people that, you know, if you have to demand forgiveness, uh, you're probably not very repentant. It's not, it's not the way it works. You can't go to people whom you have hurt and say, you need to forgive me. You know, if we're starting to quote scripture at them and say, you know, you've got to forgive me, that's really not a very repentant attitude. It's not the way W.W. Phelps handled it. It's not the way we should handle it. We should own our faults. We should acknowledge the wrongs we've done and then do everything in our power to make them right. The Lord does require restitution as a part of true repentance. If we then have hurt somebody, we need to make real efforts to restore safety to that individual in whatever way that we have taken it away. And then forgiveness will come in time. It can't be hurried. It can't be demanded. It has to be bestowed when the person feels sufficiently safe. I pray that we'll all do that. I pray that we'll seek to find that place of forgiveness. It's so much easier than carrying anger and hatred in our chests. In fact, it has been said that not forgiving is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. (laughs) It really doesn't work. 
This is a gift that the Lord is giving us. As we seek forgiveness, we too can exercise that wonderful, merciful action toward those who have wronged us while taking appropriate steps to be safe. I love the scriptures. I love this reminder. It's common through scripture, this reminder to forgive. And I hope that we can look at ourselves and teach our children to to forgive one another while also teaching them to repent, which I'll talk about in the next podcast. And I've really enjoyed this time. I hope it's been useful. Signing off now. Take good care.